Kayaku Rakatira Tena Koto Katoa, Ko Rachel Kingaho, Himihitene Notitira, or Kupu no Oto Tahi, Himihi Hoki Kitamanafenua, Otiroa Nei Kianaitua Huriri, Tena Koto, Norera Tena Koto, Tena Koto, Tena Koto Katoa. A warm welcome to everyone here tonight for a very special word gala, Brave Worlds, presented by Heartland Bank. Well, we made it. <laughs> the Word Christchurch Spring Festival is here with 65 events and 147 speakers. This room is full. But what a year it has been. From lockdown through the gamut of alert levels, we've closely watched the news with not a small amount of anxiety to find out just what a festival can look like in a COVID world and how lucky we are. Because what is a festival if not a celebration of place and coming together to share experiences in real life? As our colleagues at festivals overseas find new and innovative ways to keep their audiences and support writers and sell tickets in an online world, we must never take this for granted. This in this. With this festival, we celebrate New Zealand writers and the local book industry. We reaffirm our commitment to the community of Ōtautahi, with over 40% of our events presented free to attend, so there really is something for everyone. We could not have done this, though, without so much support. To our major funders, Christchurch City Council, the Router Foundation and Creative New Zealand, thank you. How lucky we are to live in a country that values the arts. And CNZ's extra help to keep artists and organisations afloat in this difficult time will have huge resonance for years to come. Where would we have been in lockdown without art? Without books, films, music? Art is important. To our session partners, Heartland Bank, Milford Asset Management, the Naitahu Research Centre, Latitude Magazine, Christchurch Freemasons, Pegasus Health, Harcourts Gold, thank you. To our visionary board of trustees who have shown incredible leadership through a crisis, thank you. To Penny and her team at the University Bookshop who run the festival bookstores, thank you. And please make sure you visit them over the festival to buy one book or many books. To all our other partners, supporting publishers, patrons, donors, venues and volunteers, there are way too many of you to mention here, thank you. Your support enables us to carry on, to support our audience and our writers and to put on a great festival. And finally, thank you to our writers. We're here to celebrate you and your incredible work. We would not be here without you. So can I please have a round of applause for the writers? I'm extremely proud of this event tonight. Six of our esteemed writers, Elizabeth Knox, Muhammad Hassan, Becky Manuatu, Beiruz Buchani, Laura G. Mackay, and Witi Ihimaira, responding to the theme of courage in a world gone mad. But first, would you please welcome to the stage a man who's been a champion for Christchurch, for the arts, for books, and for word, who keeps coming back with enthusiasm, <laughs> who never answers his email, but always... <laughs> 
always answers the call. Your host for tonight, John Campbell. Enjoy the festival, everyone. I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I ju- I just, uh, I'm just going to ad-lib something, uh, as is my want. I just want to do a shout-out for Rachel King. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and Marion Hargreaves, too. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know... The damn you give and the energy and the love you bring to this event and the quality of the event is remarkable. I'm so proud to be part of it. And the program is extraordinary. There's still stuff, some tickets available for sessions over the weekend, and there's some fantastic sessions. So you do a great job, Rachel King. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, welcome, Ehoama. No mai harimai. Thank you for being here. Kia ora koutou katoa. What a wonderful occasion this is, and how great, as Rachel was saying, given the strange pandemic year that it's even happening at all. This is brave worlds, plural, because hetoa tomatero, bravery has many resting places. We are so delighted to have you all here. Thank you for coming. I can't believe that it's less than a year since many of us were here together with Beirut and Rachel and the Word team at Christchurch Boys High School. Just less than a year. Unbelievable. I hope you're all doing okay, although some of you will have fared better than others and there will be people here for whom every tomorrow of late has been an act of will and strength and bravery. For some of you, and perhaps many, the earthquakes in their aftermath rudely and ungratefully demanded a kind of courage that you did not know you contained. And I think often of Imam Jamal Fuda at Hagley Park, the first Friday after that terrible, terrible day, and that extraordinary sentence, I will never, ever forget hearing him say, we are brokenhearted, but we are not broken. Bravery as love, bravery as decency and generosity, bravery as faith. Now, I've no idea what our glorious writers are talking about tonight. Actually, I know one, I think. But I know that even letting us into themselves, confiding in us, trusting us to listen and to understand will be itself a form of bravery. Being true in the face of others is brave. So I want to thank them. Thank you, writers. And I want to say we are here for your words, the point Rachel was making. And we are here because of your words. There won't be anyone here tonight in this room, I am quite sure, that hasn't read at least one of you. And many of you will have read more, and some beautiful souls amongst us will have read you all. And that's why we're here tonight, because we know who you are. And as for you, dear word attendees who bought tickets for this event so fast that it was almost immediately a sellout, thank you. Although, to be frank, who knows what you're in for? It may be an act of bravery to have come. Normally, gala evenings involve red carpets and celebrities being asked who they're wearing and Ricky Gervais pretending to bite the hand that feeds. You, on the other hand, are possibly facing an evening of existential angst. (laughs) By 9.15 tonight, the abyss might seem like a discotheque. (laughs) But then who doesn't want to examine life through the words of writers like our really special six guests tonight? their ways of seeing, their big hearts. 
We all hate the winter southerly, yes, but don't we know we're alive when we're standing in it? So, everyone, welcome. The theme, as we know, is brave worlds, courage, however people want to interpret that. And uh, I will introduce each writer before they speak, beginning with Elizabeth Knox. Sometimes when I read Elizabeth Knox, I circle the page like our cat Peggy circles her favourite cushion. Normally when I read, I read, and normally when Peggy sits, she sits. But there are writers for whom the words perform such particular magic that reading them becomes both a macro and micro treat, both at once. Here is the story, and I do want to know what happens next, yes, but not before I read this page again and stop for a moment or two and gaze off to that hidden place in the middle distance of every room where something wonderful is read and think to myself, how the fuck did she do that? (laughs) Of course, we all know... I just put that fuck in because National Radio are recording it. (laughs) So, So there'll be seven myocardial infarctions in Kelvin when this is played out. Uh, Of course, we all know that about Elizabeth Knox. There'll be hardly anyone here tonight who hasn't read her and paused while reading her and thought to appropriate the title of Bill Manhart's wonderful new collection, Wow. And I suspect our collective delight at the slate review of the absolute book was heartfelt evidence of that. Cultural cringe, possibly. Yes, we love it when foreigners really notice one of us. But way more importantly than that, it was because Slate reviewed Elizabeth Knox with such joy. And we don't comfortably do that kind of joy in New Zealand because people might look at us and our fly might be undone. (laughs) And Slate was right. When I was finished with the absolute book, Dan Coas wrote... I wanted everyone to read it so I could discuss it with them. Yes, me too. And hence so many of of us felt that way about Elizabeth Knox before. I suspect for many of us starting two decades ago with The Vintner's Luck. Do you remember the way we were suddenly all reading it? The way we all felt that experience of continuous awe that Slate describes. And don't we all have our other favourites? Perhaps in some cases less widely read for me, it's Billy's Kiss, which I love for the story, for the speedway slam of its genre demolition, and for all it manages to do at once. So here she is at Word Christchurch, world famous not only in New Zealand, companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit Arts Foundation Laureate, beloved and acclaimed writer a writer of worlds bravely. Please welcome Elizabeth Knox. That was very much the nicest introduction I've ever had. I was given a very nice introduction to John years ago because I, I was I used to have endless conversations with his father, Jim, who used to come into the museum shop and talk to me and whoever I was working with about whatever the hell. And he kept talking about his son, of whom he was enormously proud. And at some point he produced this, I think you were 18 or something at the time, and I would have been 24, 25. And, and, And there was this tall thing, you know, tall, shy thing, who was clearly kind of like trying to bask in the aura of the love and step out of the aura of the love. And I've just, I was always just very, very deeply impressed by that affection. That was my first recommendation to John. So, yeah, I just thought I'd say that. Of course, of course, you know, I'm old. So, you know, we get all nostalgic and sentimental. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, right. 
Um, I've sort of taken this as not as bravery, but as courage. I don't think there's a distinction, but courage is the thing that I think of. So, <clears throat> courage. It's a thing I find myself saying to young friends discouraged by reversals. When they're talking about confidence, how great it would be to have more. Confidence is the idea we've been offered as if life is all first things. I say, never mind confidence, it comes and goes and can't be summoned. The thing you'll need, no matter how well you start or how lucky you are, is courage. Not just for yourself, but to be at all useful. You need courage just to live. For the past little while, I've been spending time with a friend who is the kind of cancer with bad statistics. 11 months ago, we'd crouched together on the top terrace of her garden, brushing our fingers through the leaves of the strawberry plants, feeling for the fruit. Five months ago, she'd be telling me about her treatment, or we'd chat with the district nurse who was changing the dressing on a drain about COVID, or the National Party's hot date night outfit changes of leadership. <laughs> Three months, sometime in the course of treatment, into the course of treatment, the conversation has slowed. Her words are stepping stones and some are underwater. We reminisce about family picnics in Akatarawa, how we found the stream overflowing and looking down at the drowned pasture was like gazing into another world where the water was shining air. Are any streams near pasture now ever that clear, she wonders. Her husband appears with her frothed milk and my coffee and with both of them in the room, I asked after her father. Her father spoke at my father's funeral, at my mother's. My mother visited hers in the month she was dying. She and her husband don't have kids, but she has this nuggety, active 96-year-old who remembers training as a pilot in the war and being kept back to train more pilots while his brother went off on the bombers. We have a hard time now getting him off his childhood, my friend tells me. I've only had 10 minutes on how he met mum. It was her mum and my dad who met first, helping another tramper across a swollen river. They just happened to arrive at the bank together. I'm thinking about the luck, good and bad, at arriving at things together. I'm thinking about constancy, I bear my friend company, but we're also with her mother and father, my mother and father, their friends, and our cats, those characters, the long-haired ginger kitten her parents gave mine when Dad was deep in mourning for another cat, their Burmese who'd come along on the picnics and let off her harness would stalk the cows. None of this takes courage. I'm no more or less afraid of other people's suffering than anyone else's. Because isn't that what scares us most, the suffering of those we love? I just hope around the edges of her hope, with all her friends, for good news about the immunotherapy, for better returns on the chemo. And if it helps with the hope and the hard slog, she can imagine me sitting with her father as often as I'm sitting with her, listening to his stories spooling back to their core of the tea plantation 
and the dog called Bongo and the mother who bolted. I'll listen for his best friends, my mother and father, for her mother and for her. Courage doesn't come into it. When my father had his heart attack and was lying in the cardio ward, while my younger sister tried to pack off our exhausted mother and escort her home on the train, I watched a nurse come in, pick up the bag attached to the catheter, look at its scant blood-tinged contents and shake her head. I didn't call this to my family's attention. I just let them go off. I settled in until, I don't know what it was, some question he wasn't able to answer about pain or pain, my touch too heavy on his puffy hand, but he shouted at me to go away, to leave him alone, and I fled, only as far as the other side of a door where I paused for maybe 15 minutes, calming my own heart, meaning to go back in. But I had a failure of courage. I was hungry. I wanted dinner and a glass of wine and to hug my husband and son and the three new cats. So I went home just for that, the duration of that. An hour later, they called me to say he was asking for me. Where's my daughter? When I got there, he wasn't conscious anymore and only squeezed my hand a few times as I sang to him. Matthew 26, 40. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep. What could ye not watch with me one hour? For a couple of years before I watched the police carry my older sister out of her house, I used to fake casually insist my younger sister, when she was back from Australia, make her visit alone. It'll be nice for you to have a conversation without me there. But the point was to have my younger sister report and have to formulate thoughts. I'd say no one ever believes me when I try to tell them. This is a report. The window frames have pouting mouths of split wood where the rain comes in. And the whole window seat is covered in plastic yogurt containers to catch the drips. The toilet will flush, our older sister says, but only if no one puts paper down it. <laughs> Vines have grown over the kitchen windows. The only clean thing in the house is the cat. She's been trying to reread her favourite books, my younger sister says, but someone has come into the house and replaced them with books that only look like them. I asked her whether the book said something different, and she got that look that says, she knows you're asking a question whose answer you already know because perhaps you're behind it. The falsified favourite books, the dying trees, the discontinuation of five-cent pieces to make people poorer. I'd be refraining from nodding in satisfaction at my younger sister's distress, but not guilty because how else could I discuss what might be done unless she saw it and then saw it again when she had to put it into words. But she's not finished, of course. Apparently our older sister's husband won't let her use more than one rubbish bag, so she has to walk around the neighbourhood at night finding skips. 
Can that be true? My younger sister asks. She also told me the girl's dentist bills aren't paid and she's getting phone calls about it and he, who has the checkbook, won't pay because one, the dentist was her idea and two, he'll pay as late as possible so the buddy will earn more interest in his account, not the dentist's. <laughs> How do we know whether that's true, my sister says, with the poison trees and the changed books? How can we know that's true? I did do something about this, and I watched the police carry my older sister out of the house. I visited her on the ward even after she hit me. And for a long time, the story had a happy ending. Yes, she's maybe still creeping around the neighborhood after dark to find a skip, but she had the cat tramping clubs, over 65s walking group, and kindly older women who were her friends. I've been writing about this in the course of writing about my mother and sometimes have considered the courage it took to be the one who filled out the forms and talked to people, explained, when others more closely concerned were too afraid or too worn down or, unlike me, couldn't remember her as a child, with all that life and fancy and appetite so couldn't hope to see her again, hope for something better for her. But now, though she's still on the pills that work, she won't leave the house to see the doctor to talk about pills that might work better. And I waited for my sister from Sydney, not so that she could see it and have to describe it, but because I was too afraid to go there alone. The room is a cave of ashes, the sun is coming in through watermarks of white mould and everything is grey or glossy with grease. Her hands shake. She's wearing socks like flapping sleeves. Her toenails tear them, she says. I'm making feeble queries as if indignation is a door I can walk through. Does your doctor renew your prescription without even seeing you? Meanwhile, my younger sister gets her to take off her socks and tenderly tries to trim the nails curling over the ends of her toes. What do the girls say, I persist? The daughters in their 30s now. I fish. What's your doctor's name? But she won't tell us. She remembers being carried out of the house. She won't leave the house, even to look for the cat, the only clean thing, who made a break for it a few weeks back. My husband looked, she says, till it was his bedtime. She wouldn't even go into the backyard to call, although telling it, she's in tears of remembered fear. My younger sister goes home. One of the daughter's first reactions when asked to consider what might be done is to lean against her husband and tremble. My younger sister says, I literally cannot come home, so the ball's in your court. But there's no regrouping. There's no one to ask. There's her husband making promises to talk to her doctor and then nothing and the privacy laws. There's no one to take my call. And so, in the end, there's just this, my own failure of courage. My could ye not watch one hour and it is the only thing to offer me its cold hand and lead me out of the cave of ashes.
Thank you. I think that's it for the night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Holy shit, Elizabeth, that was good. Whoa. Her words are stepping stones and some are underwater. Boy, that was fantastic. Thank you. And I, I do, I really want to thank you for the generosity of sharing that with us. That was, yeah, that was exhausting. That's all I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, boy, that was, that was a lot. Thank you. I also, I also do want to say that, uh, Elizabeth, you'll be talking about the absolute book with Noel McCarthy tomorrow, right? Uh, Sunday. Sunday. Turanga? Are you mid-day on Sunday? I think there's a small number of tickets still available. That will be a fantastic session. Highly recommended. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, our next writer on this gala night, the celebration of words and courage, the courage of our writers and writing worlds into being or reflecting on worlds or holding them to account is Muhammad Hassan. Muhammad's new poetry collection, National Anthem, was launched last night. I wasn't there because I only flew down today, but I've had it in manuscript form for a few weeks now. And Muhammad is my friend. We were colleagues at RNZ too. And when friends ask you to read things, you feel excitement, yes, and hope, yes, but maybe also a tender trepidation in case the arrow lands with a thud rather than a thwack. But this is a fantastic collection, Muhammad. Timely, yes, but so much more than that. At times, as in the poem Bury Me, in its unflinching mining of biography, and in the cast of parents, grandparents, uncles, the childhood humiliations, it reminds me a little of Robert Lowell. And uh, the poem John Lennon begins. People talk about John Lennon like he was God, but he never spoke to me with its shades of public enemies fight the power. And it is the first time in history I've read a poetry book that reminds me of uh, Robert Lowell and Chuck D simultaneously. <laughs> so go, Muhammad. And then there's Muhammad's truth-telling, from which none of us are exempt, including himself. Office party ends. Here's what none of the pamphlets at the university health clinic tell you. The path of least resistance is self-loathing. You can't see your value when the lights are out. If you hold everyone at arm's length, you never have to apologise or ask for help. That is tough writing. And then there is otherness, the tyranny of it, the way it degrades and demeans and diminishes and strips us of what we share. Muhammad subverts that too. And suddenly the monsters are not them but us, that achingly vile polarity. The woman who told his mother to get the hell back to where she came from in the Milford Mall car park. And we know that meanness, don't we? That's our side of the family. And we well know too the murderous hate that that enmity can lead to. So, Muhammad, it really thrills me to tell you I love your book and it thrills me to welcome you and your words and your worlds and your bravery to word. Oh, John. Ah. <laughs> uh, Thank you very much for that, my friend. My act of courage today is to speak on this lantern after Elizabeth Knox. Kia ora, assalamu alaikum. My name is Muhammad Hassan, and uh, I uh, wanted to share with you an insight into my community, 
um, over the course of several decades. When my dad first arrived in New Zealand in 1996, he stayed in a spare room belonging to an elderly Egyptian couple for three months. In that time, Nazli and Abdul Ghani became his adopted parents in this foreign country. Auntie Nazli was a sprightly matriarch, darting in and out of rooms mid-conversation, waving her arms wildly and talking to anyone who would enter her house like a long-lost family member. Once, while hosting us and our visiting grandfather for dinner, she disappeared suddenly from view for half an hour and returned with a dusty album from another era. She perched herself in the middle of the room and declared she had found the distant relative that linked our two families together. Her husband, Giddu Abdel Ghani, was once an Air Force pilot who fought in the Arab-Israeli War in 1967, but now sat quietly in his armchair, gleefully content with letting his matriarch fill the room. Their home was a sun for which the rest of us new migrants revolved around. On most weekends, they'd hold big dinners with open doors. Whenever they heard a new family had arrived in the country, they would reach out to them to welcome them, ask them what they need, feed them, hook them up with others in the community who could help. My father, then a 34-year-old electrical engineer who may as well have been an astronaut on a mission to Mars seeking life and economic opportunity, found in them a sense of home, a familiar quiet in the chaotic uncertainty of migration. He became especially close to their oldest son, Ale, who married a Samoan woman named Gladys, who everybody adored, and named his firstborn daughter the first Samoan Egyptian I had ever met, and possibly the <laughs> first there was ever in the world. He named her Nazli after his mother. They would have two more children, Tafa and Maryam, and all three of them would become doctors. I don't know if it was because there were no other Egyptians when they first arrived, one son at a time, first in the late 70s and then early 80s, or because they consciously wanted to plant roots in this country, but the circumference of their family stretched and grew. Uncle Ahmed married into a Pakeha family in the 80s, then later after a divorce to a Singaporean one. The next two also married Pakeha women, then it was Uncle Ale and Auntie Gladys, the Samoan Egyptians, and then Uncle Amr, whose partner was Maori. At family gatherings, the feathers falling from the wings of their children and aunties and mother-in-laws and sisters and adopted kin like my father and my mother would pile up in the living room in the kitchen in the backyard. Glistening white feathers would float out through the window on a summer breeze around the Titoki trees and up the streets until they reached Apia and London and Singapore and Cairo and Tauranga. Last Monday, I drove to a small mosque near Auckland Airport where the rest of my community had gathered to pray over Auntie Nazli before she would be buried. At the Manaka Memorial Gardens, we took turns shoveling dirt, her five sons now in their 50s and 60s overcome by uncharacteristic silence. I watched as one by one, feathers floated down from the air and began collecting at the foot of her grave. Dozens of children who once danced and dotted around the bones of her home, now men and women with families and children and careers, their infants cradled in their arms as they laughed with cousins they hadn't seen in months. Young Nazli, the granddaughter, talked excitedly about trying to raise her two children between hospital shifts and then asked if we were coming over later for food with everyone else. My dad stood on the periphery, overcome with an emotion I had never seen in him before. His words trapped in his throat, his hat lowered to hide his eyes, 
After Giddu's death a few years ago, Auntie Nazli was the last paternal figure in his life. And between a rush of memories, he must have felt a strange loneliness seeping in. When the grave was filled, our local imam, Sheikh Rafat, gathered us closer and told us that what we perceive as a dark hole in the ground, triumphed by dirt, was just a portal into another world. One that Auntie Nazli was now traversing alone, left with the sum of her short life on this earth and the numerous acts of kindness and connection she had provided for nearly everyone that stood with us that day. I thought about this community she had built. I thought about what it meant for me, the shelter it had provided, and I asked myself what I have offered in return. On the drive back from the cemetery, my brother tells me it is so strange how desensitized we've become to burials. I tell him it's a healthy thing to be comfortable with death and reflect on it the way that Islam teaches us to. But I know what he really means. Like me, he's remembering those four days in March last year here in Christchurch where we buried 51 people from our community. Like dozens of other Muslims, my brother had flown down from Auckland to help. All of the childhood friends I'd met at gatherings, like the ones at Auntie Nazi's house, were there. Day by day, they drove to the cemetery and donned fluorescent vests to usher the mourners around a surreal sight. Fifty-one holes dug six feet deep, aligned side by side in five rows. Over a makeshift speaker system, another childhood friend, Bilal, read out each name and called the family to come forward. A group of six or seven lifted up the body and walked it 100 meters through the crowd until it reached its home. The opening passage of the Quran was read out, and then we lined up, heaped a mount of dirt in our hands and gently threw it in. Then my brother motioned people to make way before Bilal read out another name, and the ceremony began again. From Tuesday until Friday, for five hours at a time, this is all we did. In the morning, we would stand with the bodies laid out in front of us and pray the funeral prayer. In the evening, we would visit the families, Sheikh Rafat out in front, telling stories about his memories of each of the departed and describing in vivid color the journey they were now on. On Friday afternoon, as the final body was lowered into the ground, everyone on site broke down together. A week of levy tears finally allowed to flood. Maybe it's a sign of trauma to connect seemingly disconnected memories. The natural death of an elderly matriarch and the unnatural death of a congregation. But in times of distress, our memories tend to collapse on top of each other. We look for patterns in the chaos to help us make sense. All of my conversations in New Zealand now inevitably return to Christchurch. It is like a glitch in time, a rupture in the VHS film that keeps replaying a loop of a memory. My brother tells me on the drive home he avoids attending Friday prayers now, that he can't bring himself to take his two sons to the mosque, that he doesn't feel like he can protect them there. In the aftermath of March 15, attacks against the Muslim community have not stopped. Several groups, including the Islamic Women's Council, have been the subjects of targeted campaigns of hate. A study by the University of Auckland says Islamophobic abuse has risen since March 15 by 1,300%. When I walk into a mosque on Friday, a small part of my brain is imagining worst-case scenarios. A stranger with ill intentions entering through the doors as our backs are bowed in prayer. 
a driver caught in a moment of rage who swerves onto a footpath as we're leaving to return to our lives, or a simple hateful word hurled from a speeding car that will leave us on edge for the rest of the day. I've spent the better part of 25 years waiting for someone to hand me a certificate that tells me that I am the same as everyone else, that promises safety and warmth to my two young nephews, dancing around our feet in their uncomplicated joy. This is not the world that I want them to inherit. After March, I asked myself what this country means to me and what I mean to this country. I suppose I'm still trying to figure that out. But an image is beginning to form in my head. A belonging is a state of being. It is also a verb, a doing thing, an act of resistance. If I am to belong, then I must will it for myself. If my nephews are to belong, then it is on me to build for them the country that can hold them, a house through which they can dance and sing their wings outstretched and soaring. At the sentencing hearing in August, a man who looks an awful lot like my father speaks from his soul. He says, my brothers and sisters suffered, but we are stronger than ever before. His name is Mirwais Waziri, and he is a national hero. A woman who looks an awful lot like my sister speaks through anger and beauty and pain. She says, in the end, love will always win that the events of March 15 have woven us a thread that is far more integral in the fabric of New Zealand society than ever before. Her name is Sara Qasim, and she is a national hero. Four days ago, I stood at the foot of Auntie Nazli's grave and looked around in awe at the world she had created, the seeds she had sown, planted and nurtured for more than six decades, and I saw a new New Zealand that sprung forth into life a soft-spoken one that willed itself into being, that needed no one's approval or acceptance. Its wings unfurling under a perfect blue sky, its gentle feathers falling all around us, shimmering in the infant glow of a sun that climbs higher and higher, lifts its head from an early grave and floats up and up and up into the heavens, a matriarch ascending a guiding light that illuminates us all, this tiny community of ours shining with purpose, a commitment to grow, to resist, to hope, and dare I say it, to belong. I do want to reflect on the generosity of that, Mohammed, and on the generosity of that, Elizabeth, and on how much of us, sorry, how much of yourselves you gave. And, and I, I, it's hard to respond because we're still learning this stuff from the outside. But I, it reminds me of, of a story that I tell all the time about Guled. Guled Meyer, and I was doing a tiny little event similar to this in Auckland, the Wednesday before the Friday. I don't know if you know the story, Mo. Do you know the story? 
and uh, Gulead, and I don't, I can't even remember what it was about. So much has happened since. But Gulead talked about the sense of being the other, and he said he worries about the Muslim community in New Zealand. He worries about his nephews and nieces. And he fears that something will happen to them. And I sat there shocked by this, thinking, surely not, surely not, surely not, 48 hours later. So when you talk, and I hear this room of 300 people, listen, listen, listen. Shit, that's a fantastic thing. So thank you, Mohammed, and thank you, Room. It was wonderful. And I do, I do want to say, I mean, that, that was a kind of, it was a, that was a, a game of two halves, wasn't it, that, that moment's piece? But the, but the beautiful observational stuff, that lovely eye for people and their behaviour and the way they talk, their cadences and stuff, it's very much in here. So highly recommended national anthem. You can probably buy signed copies out the front afterwards. <laughs> um, Becky Manawatu. Uh, sometimes books are contagious, like music, like the way a song or an album takes off and everywhere you go, people are listening to it and it becomes the shared music of that time and you sing it together. Owe was like that early this year. Everyone I knew was reading it, Becky Manawatu, Becky Manawatu. It was that book. And people spoke of it with genuine gratitude as if it were a gift to them, although we were all Googling Becky Manawatu like crazy so we could pretend we'd known about her for some time now. <laughs> Oh, yes, Becky Manawatu, of course. <laughs> Owe is a stunning book, vivid and human and sad and heartbreaking and hopeful. It takes a special kind of writer to weave that tapestry and to not leave the weight of the weaving on the page. Many people I know, me amongst them, read it urgently as if receiving a 111 call. So great was our fear and love for and of its characters. So great was our need to know. Brave worlds, the scarlet evening is called, and there are so many in the way. Going on is brave. The audacity of hope is brave. Love is brave. It's the stuff Muhammad was just talking about. And Becky, holding up your own history, a real human loss in the form of a 10-year-old boy and making something so good, dedicated to that boy, that will endure beyond the capacity we have to break things. That is brave. Owe is a great New Zealand novel. And its author, who was Naipahu, is here with us tonight in Ototahi. And we are so delighted to be with you in your home. Tenakwe, kia ora, rawa atu. It is such a pleasure to welcome you, Becky Manawatu. That was beautiful. Thank you very much. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Biki Manawatua hau, ko kaitahu, ka te mamoe a waitaha ka iwi, no mai hare mai, maori ora ki te whare. I started writing this about 10 days ago, despite being given months. <laughs> <laughs> there is a reason it look, took me so long, and I wasn't stoned, I promise. I smoke my weed infrequently and responsibly, harmlessly, <laughs> probably like, 46% of you. <laughs> I reckon probably a bit more in this room. <laughs> I thought of the people I would be sharing the stage with, writers such as Witi Ehemaira, 
and Elizabeth Knox, whose names have been with me since I first hoped I might follow a similar path, the stunning bravery of Beirouz Bouchani, and now new names, new friends to me, Mohammed Hassan and Laura Jean McKay. I thought of Ototahi. I thought of you all here tonight and the brave stories each of you might be sitting with in a city where people have had to be very brave. In the face of ignorance and cowardice, in the face of murder and destruction, ka aroha kia koutou. Suffice to say, I felt a bit silly when I searched my <coughs> own memories for braveness. It feels to me the bravest and most humbling thing I've done is to be up here. <laughs> I, I thought about calling in sick on it. <laughs> to write this, I had to stop comparing myself to my co-speakers and I stopped thinking about meeting John Campbell. <laughs> I decided to flip it. If I don't feel like I am brave, maybe share when I wasn't, and why. The ability to be brave is given by mana, that born with mana we get. For me, that mana came with being born to an Irish mother and a Māori Pākehā father. The mana that came with being born a moko of a Naitahu man, Richard Wixon, who was even awarded a bravery for, for uh, a medal for bravery in World War II. He survived that war, but died very young. The mana of being born the moko of a Pākehā woman, Doreen Wixon, who would lose her husband far too soon, but go on to live completely independent, even driving until age 90. The mana of being born the moko of an Irishman, Cyril Duggan, who would survive losing two sons to drug overdoses, my uncle Terry and uncle Glenn, a grandchild to murder, my cousin Glenbo, and another to suicide. Born the moko of Elsa Dawn, who I never met, my granny who raised seven children, including my mother, in very hard times. In such hard times she didn't even tell many of them their birthday for a long time because she was afraid she wouldn't always be able to make the day special. There is also the mana we are given. My sisters spoon-fed me mana from birth. Being almost 10 years younger than them, they carried me around on their hips and made me feel utterly safe and happy and protected. As I grew, they talked to me about my whakapapa. No one ever messed with me or my brother because of them, and it made me increasingly bold. From my mum, who encouraged me to write, and my dad, who took me to sea with him often as a kid when he was the skipper of a boat. Even gave me one of my first jobs, cooking for crew on scampi trips. My children, well, it's watching them grow into the beautiful, kind humans they are that makes me feel mana. My husband slaps it on me like it's tea sauce and I'm two scoops of Tony's chips. <laughs> Best chips in Westport. Great if you've got a wee case of the munchies. <laughs> there is the mana that comes from the group shared as a community. <clears throat> in Te Ao Māori, a good example would be at the Marae. As we lived far from our marae growing up and my dad had not connected to it, I had to think about how I best understand this mana. Not sure if I have it right, but I decided Waimangaroa Primary School was one place I shared in collective mana. To encapsulate the school, I'll share this. Through the cold months, the parents were asked to donate homemade soup. 
Us kids could order it by the cup for about 50 cents and have a slice of toast for about 10 cents a pop. I looked forward to the cold months. Most of us would sit together in a classroom at our desks, bunched into islands, and would eat. There is something about a group of kids eating the same thing together that is really connecting. Superside, I can tell you, I gained mana for feeling smart there. How quickly it was swiped from me, stepping onto the next rung on the ladder of our education system. The night before I was to go to the local high school for a school streaming test, I checked my pencil case to make sure I had everything I needed. Remember feeling it was important to get a good night's sleep, setting the alarm earlier than usual to eat some wheat bix have a shower, and go through the contents of the pencil case once more. Maybe do some of those figure eight things with my thumb, those brain exercises. Remembered a deep certainty I'd do well at the test which would label us. And we all knew what the labels were used by our peers. We would either be brainy, average, or dumb. <laughs> Remember arriving to the hall at Buller High, hardly ever having been there before. Remember looking at the desks set apart from each other, separate islands, made my stomach freeze, crave hot soup. Remember sitting up in my seat, pretty sure I'd do okay. Had a little all with myself about how I should go slow, take my time on each answer. Did not pay attention to the ticking clock. Wave of anxiety cut through me when an adult in the room said just five minutes left. I'm not entirely sure, but my recollection is I was just over halfway through. When time was called, I hadn't completed it and knew, knew deep down I hadn't done as well as I expected. Had not factored into the thing, time into the thing, so focused on be, being careful, forgot also, be fast, like it's a race. Had me a tonguey when I learned my label, learned by my, brun <coughs> my brain function was henceforth, or at least until proved otherwise, to be classed as average. Embarrassed to say I did not show up the first day at Buller High with the intention to prove them wrong. I thought if they, they think I'm average, I'll be average. I was not brave. With diminished mana dosed up on other things more suited to average brain function, those things included dopamine hits via attention from boys, drinking, smoking, and not attending the institution where my brain function had been labelled as average as frequently as was required. <laughs> Can't say those things wouldn't have happened anyway because I was a teenager, but I do know they happened more easily. I wanted to be swept away from the system in a current of negative choices because, well, fuck them and that label and the absolute reckless way they manhandle mana. It is not breaking news that streaming in schools is damaging. There is already much research to back that up. The research also says it's racist, like our cannabis laws. This study of 70,000 Māori learners said Māori were disproportionately represented in low-ability classes and interviews with Māori students <coughs> showed streaming had a negative impact on their lives. Streaming does remain a practice in schools. Some schools have done away with it and others haven't. And that's enough to piss me off <laughs> because it is an example of how poorly mana can be handled by structures built to help just one, and there are many more examples like this. 
I am Pākehā, but I am also Māori, and I was very much a Māori kōtero when I sat in my chair ready to take that test because I believed it was another stroke propelling me forward in the waka to become my ancestors' wildest dreams. It didn't sit well with me to instead feel mana stripped away and a label slapped on my brain. It was straight up rude, to be honest. And that's what makes it racist, that mishandling, misunderstanding and minimising of mana. And perhaps that it forces individualistic values on tamariki for whom such values might just seem average. Well, if we're into name calling, dumb, like our cannabis laws. <laughs> the real yuck happens when people get stuck believing such rubbish too long because they are told lies like this more often more often than I was. The demonstrative stripping of mana repeated, repeated it enough and it might make a person lose footing on their whenua, lose touch with the mana that comes from their whakapapa, the people who love and cherish them and their community. Like for example, if someone was streamed and labelled dumb and then later got caught with some weed and labelled a criminal. Okay, I think I've made my point. I probably need to give up there. <laughs> Um, I left high school with little more than school certs, a mark scraped together in sixth and seventh form and a signed yearbook. In the yearbook, the head boy had written that he reckoned he would buy my novel one day. Better than a ministry endorsement, I thought, a totoko in the form of a few words from one of my mates. I hope he's bought it now. <laughs> but imagine the increased and beautiful braveness Moranga Tahi might walk in the world with on their whenua with, if mana was handled with manaki, not dumb colonising practices. Toi tu te kupu, toi tu te mana, toi tu te whenua. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. What a fantastic night this is. It's really great, eh? Oh, shit, that was good. Is that a true story about what the head prefect wrote in, ye in the yearbook? Is that, is that, damn, what a lovely guy. No. And, so, sorry, I'm not interviewing you, but did he, but did, had you told him you wanted to write a novel? Did you know, had you declared that you wanted to be a writer by then? Wow. We need to track him down. It was beautiful, Becky. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, my son goes to a, a, a school, a Catholic school. A lovely thing about Catholic schools is that they don't have zones, a real mixture of kids. And he did uh, Cambridge last year, which was essentially streaming. And this year he's doing NCA. And he's so much happier in NCA because he's just a better class of kid. Just not, there's just not a whole lot of uptight wankers. <laughs> Um, I do want to say uh, that Becky Manawatu will be talking to Emma Espiner at three o'clock tomorrow afternoon, and that will be a brilliant, brilliant session. I'm such a fan of both those women, the work of both those women, and together they'll be wonderful. I don't know if there's tickets available, but do seek that out. It'll be extraordinary. There is? There is, Rach? <laughs> Go, Rach.
I can't recommend that highly enough, that one. Three o'clock tomorrow afternoon. You can go and see Bill Manhar and me together first flirting with each other. And then, and then you can go off to the serious women. Um, well, I'll flirt with Bill. He'll just look at me like... He used to look at me when he was my lecturer. Like, why doesn't that guy sit still? Uh, Beirut. On the 14th of November last year, Beirut Bouchani arrived in Christchurch to speak at a special event organised by Word, a man who'd been held in the Manus Island Detention Centre since 2013, who'd been reduced by Australia's Pacific solution to a kind of unman, a crushed person, as he wrote in No Friend But the Mountains, someone extremely degraded, someone worthless. Yes, an example to strike fear into others, to scare people so they won't come to Australia, was here in Christchurch, free, thanks to Word and Rachel King and Amnesty International and Beirut himself, of course, who was then offered a senior adjunct research fellowship at the University of Canterbury and the protective cloak of Naitahu's aroha and refugee status and life in this great city uncaged. It is a remarkable story. And No Friend But The Mountains is an extraordinary book. If you haven't read it, and I suspect most of you have, you really must. Written in Farsi on a mobile phone. We all know the story, but I can't get over it. Smuggled out of Manus, text by text by text on WhatsApp, speaking truth to power and asserting repeatedly what appears to be the most audacious and provocative claim a refugee can make, the simple right to be seen as human. So now he is amongst us as a New Zealander, and tomorrow he... he <laughs> And tomorrow he may or may not have a pie and a few beers and watch the rugby, knowing that even if the All Blacks beat the Wallabies comfortably, it won't have anything on the fucking thrashing that he and Rachel and Word and Amnesty gave Peter Dutton last year. <laughs> he is a journalist, a writer and a filmmaker, and his bravery has somehow extraordinarily led him here to us. Ladies and gentlemen, Beirut Bouchani. Thank you very much. Uh, I think I should mention this, that uh, uh, I did master, so I mean that uh, I had to do my master in two years, but I did in three years. Uh, I had to do my degree in four years, but I, ha I did it in five years. I had to finish high school in four years, but I finished in five years. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is because always I, in any class, I am the most laziest one. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I thought that it, it changed, but for today, yeah, I write nothing. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, I thought that probably some uh, don't write, so I said, it's okay, so I go there. <laughs> so I write nothing, so I'm sorry, Rachel. <laughs> yeah. After all she's done. 
No, I, I write something for tomorrow night, so... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's really... And I think the... I think, I feel, that the reason uh, the festival in, invited me for this event because they probably think that I'm a brave person. I think it's like that. But I should uh, say something about my... I am sorry, I forgot to my Look at that. I should just check. It's, I should talk for 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there is some moment in life, and I think if you be lucky, you experience that moment that you should make decision or you face this concept of courage, that you are brave or you are not. And I think I experienced something like this in my life. Uh, I describe that in my book, that I was born in war. And I say that as a court, that I am the son of war. And this war is not our war. This war imposed on us. And sometimes you know have way just to fight. And uh, I think that is not only my experience, that is experience of any court in this world. And, uh, you know, before the event I say that, uh, I just I should forget about that, I know of time. Yeah, uh, when I was uh, 22 years old, 23 years old, uh, some of my friends, they wanted to join Peshmerga. And Peshmerga is a, like a guerrilla, the court who are fighting in the mountains. So you should take the gun and fight with the enemies for the system which is a dictatorship system which colonized your land, your culture, your everything. And I think that happened for that moment. Most of the courts face that moment when they are 20 years old, 22, 23. They think that there is no way I should join Peshmerga. I should go to the mountains and take a gun and fight. And I think that happened for me too, because I was in my life, I witnessed how a language disappeared. I witnessed how a language died. I witnessed how the cultural elements died under that system. I mean, and our people in that province that I was born were became different people. They assimilated in a different culture. In a, and they, that was huge for me as a young man to accept that. And that's why when I was 22, 23 years old, some of my friends, they joined Peshmerga. And I was facing this, I, I was thinking to join because 
there is a dictatorship system, so there is no, no space that you write, you publish what you want, you talk about what you want. Um, many times I wanted to do that, and I approached them, but I didn't do that because I convinced myself, no, I cannot do that. I cannot fight in that way. So I should come back and go to the city and write and fight in this way to challenge the system. So I didn't do that. And still I have this question for myself. Did I, was, I was scared or really I didn't believe in war. I didn't believe to take a gun and fight. So still I have this question and I don't have answer for that. So 10 years later, it, it is my biggest great, uh, honor in my life that I published a book which the title is No Front But The Mountains, which is a Kurdish term, that the courts no have friend but the mountains. And this book translated to at least 15 languages and published in more than 25 countries. And now, and I receive many messages from people that they said, oh, we, I'm looking for, I'm searching to write a book about Kurdish people, about your resistance. I mean, I had a small role. So still, but I have that question. And yeah, that is my personal life. So I think the time finished. <laughs> yeah. Actually, thank you. I'm sorry. I. I th yeah, actually, in my mind, I write something in three chapters. So first chapter was this, second chapter was about a man who was with me in the ocean, and the third chapter was about tears, so I think I should go on. <laughs> I should I continue? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ten years later, when I was in Indonesia, I met a man. I think I should make it short. Yeah, I met a man. His name was Ali. So I did two journeys to Australia. So the first one, I was almost drowned. So the, they, someone took me, collected me from the water. And so I experienced one journey on the ocean, and I experienced that how it was dangerous. Then I met a man, his name was Ali, and we were sitting in a balcony in Indonesia, in a hotel. He said that, but he didn't have that experience. He said, that, oh, if I go to the ocean, it's easy, just in 24 hours we are in Australia. And I said, no, it's not like that. So I did that, and I almost, Drawn. But he said, no, I, yeah, just we should do it. 
So we did it. We did it again, but it was second time for me. And many of my friends, they didn't do it. Just they stay in uh, Indonesia. So we did it. After four years, yeah, we reached to a latest uh, island in the Indonesia, close to Australia. In that island, so we, for six hours, we were on the ocean, but the waves was, were the, very big, so it was very dangerous. And the pilots said, no, we should go back. So they took us back to the, that island. Again, second day we did, then he said, no. so our petrol finished. And they uh, contacted uh, Jakarta, and they said, okay, we will send you petrol. They sent a small boat, and Ali came to me and said, oh, Berus, we should go back with that small boat, go back to Indonesia. Yeah, I cannot do that. It's very dangerous. Yeah, I'm scared, and this. And there was a competition between the people on the boat, because the boat was small. If we were 60 people, the boat could take only like eight people back to Indonesia, the boat that brought us petrol. And Ali said, I sh yeah, I cannot do that. I said that if you are a stupid, come with us to Australia, that we do it. But if you really, you, you are not a stupid, okay, it's the best way is to just go back to Indonesia. We went to Australia, so Ali went back. I was in Christmas Island. After 20 days, someone was calling me, Beirut, Beirut, in behind the fence. And I saw that was Ali. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing here? He said, I went back to Indonesia, but later the smuggler got a big boat. So I felt <laughs> safe and I came. So the number of my boat was 810, and he was like 850. So Australia started to send the first boat to Manus Island. Each week, one plane, you know. After five months, so Ali, he was in the queue, in the line to be sent back to Manus Island. But we did a riot or a protest in Manus Island, and they stopped sending people and say, okay, the people who are in, who left in Christmas Island go to Australia, and they are free. So he became free. He is free for, <laughs> he's free for seven years, but I was in Manus Island for six years. And I think that is very interesting. I was thinking <laughs> that he was crying. But he, yeah, so, but he did that. So he went to Australia. So that was very interesting. But, uh, and now chapter three, just I should say something on base of my experience. That really, it is my understanding that courage is very related to helplessness. When you are like that, you are, you can do dangerous things. You can take risk. And 
but for me, my understanding of bravery is that it's really difficult in this complicated world and in some ways this crazy world to stay as a human, to be honest, to keep your principle. It's very, very difficult. And I think the most bravest people are those people who still stand up for humanity, who still keep this principle alive, or it's very difficult to be like that. And my experience here when I got freedom, it became a big news and uh, it was very difficult to say no to some offers, say no to for example, if I just give you a small example, is that someone wanted to make, so I never look at my story as a personal story, uh, as a, like a commercial, commercial story, or make you as a celebrity, you become a celebrity, it's easy to be this. And I have been struggling to don't let those people, I mean, this capitalist system, to reduce this tragedy, which is not my tragedy. It is a, yeah, it's a big story to, yeah, this culture that I'm talking about. It's very difficult. And I still am struggling, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure and that I became a part of the system or not. In some ways, I became a part of the system. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's very complicated uh, thing, but that is my understanding of bravery. Yeah, thank you. Beirut, we should talk about your understanding of bravery because you didn't go and fight with the Peshmerga, but you did write for a Kurdish newspaper at great personal risk. And in fact, when you were away, that newspaper was raided and the people that you worked with were arrested and imprisoned. And that was the beginning of the journey that led you to here. It was an act of immense bravery. And it was you asserting that your bravery was going to take the form of words. So thank you for your bravery. Thank you for being here tonight. Beirut has actually written something for the thing he's doing tomorrow. <laughs> it's letters to Ototahi, and it's 4.30 tomorrow afternoon. I think it'll be a really lovely session. So thanks, Beirut. It's really nice to see you. Yes. Yes. Yeah, sorry to waste the time. So what you said is other part of the story. <laughs> this story has another part. So some people say that you were not brave enough. That's why you left 
your country. And many people who attack me on social media always say that. And I think they are true in some ways. Yeah. In some ways, I don't know. So still I am facing this question. So I mean that this story has different layers. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Paris. Uh, right, Laura Jean Mackay. Uh, Dr. Laura Jean Mackay's The Animals in That Country has received rave review after rave review after rave review, but my favourite, or my favourite sentence from review came from RNZ, it's bonkers, but it's fantastic. The Guardian, by the way, called it fierce and funny, which is the same as bonkers, but fantastic only with the restraint of an expensive English education. <laughs> but they're both right. It's been a mad few weeks. And I finally, I'm ashamed to say, Laura, bought uh, the animals in that country on Wednesday, uh, full of Rachel King's absolute conviction, as she expressed to me over the phone a couple of times, that I would love it. And I started reading it, and I just, it was just... <laughs> And I kept reading, and I finished it on the plane on the way down. <laughs> and uh, Rachel, as she so often is, was completely right. Uh, I love how unabashed it is. It has glorious self-belief from its brilliant and outrageous central conceit to its characters, human and animal, to its language. The writing feels really liberated and adult in the best way. It never once falters or looks over its own shoulder. And while you wouldn't expect me to have forgotten it, given that I only finished it this afternoon, I won't forget it. Uh, especially Jean, who is so persuasively human, and Sue, who's a dingo. <laughs> I really recommend this book. Uh, it makes me want to do Dr Mackay's creative writing courses at Massey University, not, uh, not because I could ever hope to write so well, but because I would love to write that fearlessly and swear that much. There's a tremendous amount of swearing in the book, uh, not something TVNZ is keen for me to do. Dr. Mackay is, by the way, the only one of our writers whose words to note I know in advance because they've been published on the spin-off. I'm rather hoping that, I don't know, Elizabeth, I don't want to force anything upon you, but I'm rather hoping everything that's been said tonight is published because, shit, it's been good. But if you hear Dr. Mackay and think, wow, that's fantastic, it's available on the spin-off. So here she is, and so gratefully welcomed, ladies and gentlemen, Laura Jean Mackay. Tena koto katoa, ko Laura Jean McKay toko ingoa. Tena koto, tena koto, tena koto katoa. It is so wonderful to be here in one of the bravest cities um, I've known, uh, and on stage with the bravest, the bravest writers uh, that I've read. Uh, I'm, I'm here with my literary heroes, uh, so we might see my talk as sort of a, a grim intermission between, <laughs> between um, some absolute brilliance. <laughs> uh, I'll begin. Stage one, beg. To be honest, I begged her not to go. I wasn't considering how she'd lost her ability to move or that she'd been here for 93 years and her last sentence was, 
I've had just about, about enough of this. I said, Nana, don't leave me here. I meant to add alone. She gave me a look that was the very definition of world weary. Zoologist Edward O. Wilson says that we're not living in the era of the Anthropocene, the age of humans, but rather in the Americene, the age of loneliness. In the Americene, we watch extinctions occur. Photos of Lonesome George, the last surviving Pinta Island tortoise. The sonar trails of the only Christmas Island pipistrelle microbat the fruitless search for the South Island Kokako, until we are left alone in an environment entirely of our own making. I bring this up because sitting in that nursing home about to lose the woman who was more a parent than a grandmother to me, I felt a loneliness that seemed to span an epoch. Nana was still there, I could touch her hand, but I was bearing witness to lasts, words, Meal, breath, a soft-boiled lunch arrived on a trolley, but Nana couldn't eat it. She was having trouble swallowing, and at that age and stage of dementia, she wouldn't be kept alive. I rubbed water over her lips, letting some go into her mouth. She nodded firmly. Good idea. In the coming years, this desolate feeling would expand beyond Nana's small nursing home room, beyond any grief I ever had, to the collective loneliness that is this moment in time. To stay and bear witness is not particularly courageous. Not many people with my level of privilege, a Tau Iwi colonial Australian woman in the Antipodes, know that sort of courage that most people need daily. I have too much blood on my hands and take note I do not have the courage to write about the blood on my hands here. But if this is about facing fears, I have some. Ecofeminist Donna Haraway talks about staying with the trouble, which requires learning to be truly present as mortal critters entwined in myriad unfinished configurations of place, times, matters, meanings. Stage two, sit with me. I'm not afraid of death. It's no stranger to our family. My baby photos are backgrounded with my mum's and brother's grieving faces. My dad died at 27, an age where he wrote poetry, had only recently swapped out purple hot pants for jeans, and was expecting a second child, me, that he didn't live to see. Later, dad's mum in her 60s, dad's brother in his 50s. Then, as I was an adult, friends whose losses hurt so much, I broke my tear ducts from crying. I actually had to go and get a tear duct operation. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> By 2015, I was watching the weather out a nursing home window near Melbourne, Victoria. I had been taking photos of Nana's hands on the knitted rug, hands that had always seemed to me like t tree roots holding everything together, now thin and cracked, dried leaves. Finally, I said, OK, I'll see you tomorrow and tried to stand, but I was caught on something. This dying woman had got a grip on my shirt like there was no tomorrow. She frowned at her hand like it was speaking without her. I damn well sat down again. So that year's spring was one of loss. 
In the Northern Hemisphere, the promised summer came earlier and more ferocious than usual on the Kazakh plains. And a male saga antelope, a moose-like creature with elegant striped horns and a comically bulbous nose, was hot, too hot. Possibly the hottest he'd ever been. The rest of the herd was overheating too. The saga's vacuum-like nose is host to a bacteria that usually dwells there quite benignly. But the heat that spring caused it to multiply to fatal proportions through the bodies of the population. Some 200,000 Sega died, 70% of the entire species. Closer to where we sat in the nursing home, in the same country at least, a spotlight had been turned on a native rodent called the Bramble Key Melamese. The species had existed for millennia, snacking on turtle eggs and avoiding seabirds on a vegetated plot of Coral Key sitting just above sea level at the tip of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. The mouse became the first mammal in the world to become extinct solely due to climate change. Rising sea levels and increased in severe storms washed the entire species away. So if I'm making 2015 seem like a hell of a year for endangerment and extinction, it actually wasn't. We'd only just started catching up. We were turning our heads to search for animals that most certainly had disappeared forever and on our watch. Elizabeth Colbert had just released her book, The Sixth Extinction, in which she chronicles the largest species decimation in 65 million years. I went to see her at a writers' festival just like this, part of a Melbourne audience begging for her to tell us that it would be okay, but she didn't. She fairly slumped in her seat on the stage and articulately shattered our dreams. Stage three, breathe. I stayed with my grandmother. I slept on a foam mat on the floor by her bed. She knew I was down there. More trolleys rolled down the hall and every few hours a carer burst into the room to check Nana's pulse. Nana and I both started, startled then settled, appraising each other through the gloom. And in the morning, we had breakfast. No, I ate, she couldn't. And then she couldn't swallow. And then she struggled to breathe. The rest of our family arrived. We sat by her talking, the usual scenario of her spirited daughters and grandchildren nattering away while she observed us with the keenness of a bird eyeing a worm. Except now she had her eyes closed. The smaller her life got, the closer we drew around her bed. In her essay, Do We Care About Animals Enough to stay, Save Them From Extinction, Jane Rawson wonders whether, if animals were somehow individualised, would we care more about their disappearance? Witness, she writes, the online grief and chest beating when the last male white northern rhino died. Contrast it with the complete silence when the hundreds of thousands of white northern rhinos who came before him met untimely ends. Fast forward to 2020 now, where we face our own collective demise. To date, over one million people have been killed by coronavirus. A tiny percentage in an overpopulated planet of 8 billion, but enough for us to strive on a massive global effort not to catch it and die in the tens of millions. At that scale, it's hard 
to individualise. It's hard to comprehend. Rare are the stories of single victims or survivors beyond the Trump family and other weird celebrities. It's a virus born in the flesh of dead animals. It tends to target older people. It's scary and it's also a list of, of statistics. Courage 2020 style is found in staying indoors and watching TV. And we wake with a feeling I can only equate with either guilt or grief. It's true. I'm still here and they're gone. Stage four, stay with the trouble. A Crow narrator in Max Porter's novel, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, states that they find humans dull except for in grief. In grief, the bird feels, humans are pure crow. In the final moments with Nana, I felt like her death coach. Come on, you can do it. She ignored me, held on. She was very strong. I could see her fighting to breathe even when she stopped breathing. Her big, powerful heart just kept going and going. I looked up at my family, incredulous. Was this courage? A superwoman who can live without food or breath? You see, she'll never die. Of course she died. The loss of her pecked out my voice and clawed my heart. My left eye began to flutter like it was trying to get out. In her poem, Grieving, writer Takare Papuni or JC Stern expresses it best. You bugger, you asshole, you stinking shithouse, dying without me, leaving me stranded. Stage five. Try this on. What do we have left when a life is lost and we don't have the words to describe it? Remains, memories, objects. The grainy black and white footage of the last Tasmanian tiger, thylacine, one of the world's biggest carnivorous marsupials, pacing back and forth in a bear cage, a low tail fetching stripes. The stories of a gun cracking over the Auckland Harbour as the governor of New Zealand shot the last pair of southern merganser ducks in 1902. A picture of a seal caught in the, in the giant soup that is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. In my aunt's house, the unslept hysterical laughter of women unpacking and repacking boxes, the masses of meat, the early whiskey, the late history, the sudden hot argument, a sweet smell, pressed flowers, felt hats, rings in a dish, teeth in a glass, lipsticks ground to the end of colour. I try on the rings that I now keep in a box, but whenever I do I feel silly. A girl again, dressing up in Nana's fox fur stole, creepily designed so that the mouth opened and the fox somehow bit its own tail. Is it equally foolish to visit the delicately laid out skulls of extinct moa, haast eagle and huia in Te Papa? Why do we keep these remains if we can't stop our own carnage? Why do I try on the rings if I too will die? I don't have the courage to bring children into this kind of world, so who will I pass these shiny things to? We keep these relics, of course, to bear witness, to make physical the soupy chaos to give ourselves the courage to at least know we're not faking the grief. See, I didn't imagine it. They existed. 
Here they are in a box. So I call the family and friends that I have left, trying to reach them over the coronavirus oceans, otherwise known as the ditch. They respond. When we finish talking, I go out to stare at the animals. There are more cows than native birds. I breathe in their chocolatey smell and look over the fields where blackbirds pick at the grains there. I see trouble. I sit with it. Uh, that, that ability to go back and forth, to, to, to occupy the human anim, animal world simultaneously and to, and, and to expose us as sometimes way less than we think we are and to elevate animals to way more than we credit them as being is precisely what you do so brilliantly in that fantastic novel. It's a lovely insight into that capacity to do those things was fantastic piece of writing. And you are in a session tomorrow uh, at 10.30 with Philip Armstrong called Talking Animals, which will be really, really good. So, Laura Jean McKay, um, I love your book, The Animals in That Country, and that was fantastic. Thank you. This is such a great night. And we're coming now to our final writer, Witi Ihimaira. Um, we all know this. Witi's writing is in us now. We carry it with us in the kete of our country. Pornamu, Pornamu, Tangi, Fano, the matriarch, the whale rider, knights in the gardens of Spain, the dream swimmer, on they go, and I haven't even reached the century yet. That he was the first Māori writer to have a novel and a collection of short stories published is much about his talent, but also, given this wasn't until the early 70s, it also says something about our shameful exclusion of Māori voices but he has spent very nearly 50 years helping to address that. Essa May Ranapiri put it perfectly, the ongoing search for a Māori place in a colonised world where all ourselves are held up to the light where they glow. Yes. I once interviewed Witty with his dad, Tom. I've been a journalist for about 30 years and it was one of my happiest ever shoots their love for each other, the way Tom hung on every word, his eyes sparkling, the way they held hands, their love of history, their history and our history. And I wonder now if among Witty's many great gifts to us has been to take Fano, a word which was very seldom used by anyone other than Māori when I was growing up, and to make us all desire this Māori understanding of family for us all. His has been the generosity of opening doors so the rest of us, who too often had not tried hard enough, could see the lives inside. This makes him a brilliant memoirist, by the way, and Māori boy and native son are highly recommended. So where will he take us now? still following him, still learning from him, still enriched by him all these years on. Please welcome Witi Ihimara.
You know, the good thing is that I'm partly deaf, so I never hear half of what he says. <laughs> and the other thing, of course, is that I have this wonderful saying by a journalist named Ann Landers. So whenever I come and speak to anybody, I always think of Ann Landers, who said that things are darkest before they become totally black. <laughs> um, I don't think of myself as particularly courageous, John. There are people in this hall more courageous than I, but whenever I have needed to show courage, I have intervened, and I have actually come off the worst for it. <laughs> because that is the reality. You are not always a hero, and you do not always win. Love doesn't always win. The right doesn't always hold. There's a line, however, that you must draw in your mind about what you can accept and what you will not accept. Abuse of women, bullying, threats to kill other people and to yourself. The most courageous thing I ever saw was on a beach in British Guyana. My friends had taken me there at night and I wasn't sure what to expect. Then came the blood red dawn and in the sky, the massing of huge black clouds of seagulls. Kilo! Kilo! And beyond the breakwater, the sea began to foam with seething fish. Then suddenly, up from the sand, came little turtles little turtles, hundreds of them, and they began their terror-stricken run across the beach to the sea, their fins working like crazy, to try to get to the sea. Did they know of the gulls? Did they know of the fish? What they did know was that they had to survive mindlessly triggered by some force of nature to beat the odds, to go beyond that blood-red sunrise, those screeching gulls, and the fish jumping in ecstasy, awaiting their kai. All I could think of was, go, you little beggars, go. And that's what I want to say to us tonight. Kinga ihi kaitahu o oto tahinga mihi, akuranga tira huri noa huri noa ite fare. Tene nga mihi atu kia koto haramai ki tene mahi ote po. Tuatahi, I stand on this marae and I hold a wooden rako up to the sky. It is a small spear tufted with bird feathers. It is my first rako, the warning spear known as the faka ara ara, and I fling it into the bright world above, and I asked the rako as it flies, e te rako, hea hatau e kite atu ana i akwe e rere ana i te ao. What do you see as you traverse across the sky in this world, in that world, in the world behind, in all the brave new worlds we stand in, and in the world coming towards us? And the rako calls back to me, kia mana wanui, be of good heart. The wa, the great energy that made our world, is still flowing. It is as raging as a river, gushing out of Tikore, the abyss at the very beginning of time and space. Through Tepo, 
the great night it still rushes, and across to Al, the world of light it blows. And thus is still sustained the Ara, the pathway for all life. But look, Ehor, the portal, the future into which the river pours, is closing. Can you see it closing? The portal to the future is closing. To Arua, I take up my second wooden rako, my small spear with tufted feathers. It is the rako takoto, the one that lays down the kopapa, the one which enunciates the person, the purpose of the wa. And this spear I fling even higher into the heavens. Eterako, herhatau. Why is the portal to the future into which pours the energy of the world? Why is it closing? And the Rako calls to me. Its closing is due entirely to the actions of humankind. And no better warning, of course, applies than the one we have had at hand for you people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in this very place we stand, Christchurch, on 15 March 2019. The heavens over all our heads changed. They changed forever when two mosques suffered a terrorist attack and created a new consciousness of man's inhumanity to man. A phenomenon that the Māori called the Great Pody, the Great Darkness, settled on Aotearoa. Terror, normally associated with other hemispheres, had targeted ours. How could this be? The humanitarian compulsion of Rongo, God of Peace, was falling to the actions of Tu Matoenga, God of War. Therefore, the portal was being hastened to closure by devastating human wars. 15 March 2019 and subsequently COVID-19. Our warning signs that we must all recommit to aroha ki te iwi, 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 and to take up greater activist thinking to stop the future closing, to act strategically for peace before it is too late, to call on our world leaders with louder voices to introduce international structural change, not just against racism, but to prevent ourselves from being overrun with hate, but to also obtain equity, equality and justice in all countries, not just here. You all, to act as history's witnesses, to stand up for international governmental and judicial practices that provide safety for all our peoples and against politicians who, when they fight, are like big animals that trample all the grasses underfoot. The powerless require our voices. The populations suffering famine caused by ongoing wars need rescue. People must have access to clean drinking water, not just here. They need safe homes. One child is everyone's child. One sister is everyone's sister. One migrant family is everyone's family. Black lives do matter. O poho he tangi ana tamaki te kai mana wai home te ki a ke ki te poa hokai hey amai te papa ke ki utara he wai motama ki a homa hi eto tu puna e wenu ku pakarongo ko te kumara ko farinu itera ka hiki mata te tapu wai o tangaroa ka fai mata te tapu wai o tangaroa tangaroa. All our royal children, our royal children are crying for sustenance. The legacy of the royal food, the legacy of the kumara, 
they seek knowledge of how to keep that portal open, that portal, that portal. How can they keep it open? Because it is their future, not ours. It is their health, not ours. It is their hopes and dreams, not ours. We have failed them. It is their hopes and dreams, not ours. On the same day of the mosque attacks, school children around the world put down the wet or the challenge to the escalating climate crisis. No longer would they be seen and not heard. That takes courage. No longer would they act according to an aging power elite and the inability of their elders to secure the future, not just for themselves, but also for their entire world. Their keystone, their keystone species are facing catastrophic decline. Ecologists are talking of moving animal, bird and tree species from failing biosystems to places where their accustomed band of existence will be available to them. And governments will be doing the same for the human species as climate refugees add to our current refugee crisis by seeking human biosystems that will accept them. You think you're lucky to live in New Zealand? You better believe it. The Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Let's scale that to 46 years. Humankind has been here for four hours and how we have fucked up. <laughs> In that time, we have destroyed more than 50% of our world's forests, the atmosphere we breathe, and decimated our oceanic environment. The Earth is crying. E terra clamor, the Erde weint, la terre pleure, but you know, the earth in crying does not cry for itself. Itself does not matter. But it cries for us, the people whom it is supposed to serve. Māori people say, If the land is sick and the ocean is sick, the people will get. The wā will stop flowing. That portal, that portal, that portal will surely, surely close. Tuatoru, I hold my third and final rako, my rako whakawaha, my spear with tufted feathers that is designed, hopefully, to keep that portal open. In my latest book, Navigating the Stars, I write, Me mato ki fetu i mua i te kōkere o te haere. Before you set forth on a journey, be sure you know the stars. Well, we know those stars. They are not good, not good for the mukapuna, the grandchildren. But we must collectively face the challenges and move forward on a new journey together. We may be able to redeem ourselves. We must redeem ourselves. Women have a further separate journey to take. The Me Too hashtag movement must maintain its momentum. It has to for the survival of women. E hoama, it is very simple. We have to get into legacy formulation. We have to bring our best game right now, starting right here, even though it is already late. No matter man's inhumanity to man, the rise of white supremacist rhetoric, the individualist nihilism that is affecting how some governments reorganize their policies, the decline in social democratic thought, the constant attack, on the virtue of collective action for the collective good. We've just got to create those redemptive possibilities. Oh, so what does it mean to find courage? What does it mean to find courage in this horrendous world? 
that is collapsing all around us. In the face of a global pandemic, race protests, border strife and climate anxiety. It does mean knowing what fear is. It does mean knowing what death is. It does mean, if we are required to, to put ourselves on the firing line. But it does also mean knowing what not to give up and what love is. Aroha ki te whenua, aroha ki te moana, aroha ki te mokopuna. It means all of us holding hands together and standing neck, neck deep in the clashing currents of the swirling ebb tide. The tide is ebbing away from that portal, but we've really got to stand there hand in hand. It means everyone in this hall facing the future as an iwi, as a whanau, as John mentioned, with determination to make a difference every day, to keep standing no matter the sand shifting beneath our feet. Mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, partners, grandparents, friends, strangers, you. Don't slip. Don't fall. Just keep holding each other up. Because you will have to stand forever. And I'm so honoured to be among you. What greater kaupapa do we have than to ensure through every means within our power the maintenance of the portal against the world's collapse? To be kaitiaki, a fabulous word that. To be kaitiaki of the threshold for the mukapuna's unfolding future. The task is momentous, but kia kahanga hoa. Let us together therefore aim the prow of our waka at the first star now. The constellations lie like archipelagos across the dark ocean. Let us pull ourselves along the sky rope to the second star. Take account of the sun as it sets and hold true on our course to the third star. Let Karakia open our way to the zenith star, where today becomes tomorrow and where the portal waits, waits for us to stand strong and to keep it open. So now, on your behalf and mine, I fling that third rako into the topmost heavens. Fly, O tufted spear, and plant yourself in the future. After all, humanity has such beautiful grandchildren, has such beautiful grandchildren to work for.
And so, will you join me in a waiata to the mukupuna? which seems like a really wonderful time to tell you that tomorrow <laughs> at 6.30, right, Witty? Tomorrow at 6.30, you and Kingsley Spargo are doing something very, very special, aren't you? So this is Telling Tales uh, from uh, his latest memoir, Native Son, the sequel to the award-winning Māori Boy, and they're fantastic, those two books. Witty will be accompanied by sound artist and musical polymath Kingsley Spargo, 6.30 tomorrow night. Where is that, Rach? Here. God, I can't recommend that highly enough. <laughs> Thank you, Witty. That was absolutely beautiful. I'm just... Are they your grandchildren? No, no. I'm getting off here. Right. <laughs> well, uh, I, I was thinking... I, w I was thinking, um, be Becky, about how they'd go in the streaming. <laughs> you know, those beautiful bilingual children. How would they go in the streaming? Uh, oh, okay, good. <laughs> no, no. I, um, you know, it's been a privilege to be here tonight. I, and I, I, f I feel really lucky, and I suspect we're all feeling that way. This has been a magic evening. And um, I, I, I want to say to you six on the stage, thank you for bringing so much of yourselves, for giving so much of yourselves, for giving us your heads and hearts. Can you hear me, Witty? Good. <laughs> um, th that was immense generosity. Uh, I think... We have been very, very lucky. It's been a beautiful night. Uh, Elizabeth, um, Muhammad, Becky, Beirut, Laura Jean, Witty. It's been an absolutely beautiful night. Rachel, the sponsors, 
It's been stunning to be here. It's been my privilege to be up on the stage with these people. Um, I, I, you know um, uh, Martha Gellhorn? This is, this is, Martha Gellhorn was a journalist, uh, infamously, really, appallingly better known for being Ernest Hemingway's mistress. But in fact, she was a, a brilliant war journalist who wrote, one of the first female war correspondents, who wrote brilliantly. And, and, and as the wars kind of dissipated and became more secret and more furtive and more cynical, she went off to write about them. And she wrote about America's incursions and undermining democratically elected governments in Central America. And, and there wasn't a great deal of interest in her work. And so it would be on page C72 of the Washington Post or whatever. And at the end of her life, she was asked about it. Uh, and she said, all my life I have thrown small stones into a large pond, and I have no idea whether they made even the slightest ripple. But I don't need to worry about that. My responsibility was the effort. Now, you do make ripples in the pond of us, but your effort tonight was extraordinary. And so we are so grateful for it. And it has been such a pleasure being here. Elizabeth Knox, Muhammad Hassan, Becky Manuatu, Beirut Buchani, Laura Jean Mackay, and Witi Ihmada. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> so much